So good morning, everyone, and welcome to this week's Fireside Chat. I hope everyone is having a great week so far. And um, I'm Lisa Stearns. I'm here with Tim Cross, our Senior Vice President. We do have a special guest today. Dr. Lisa Piercy, Tennessee's Commissioner of Health, is here with us and will be sharing her firsthand knowledge of how this pandemic is affecting our state. First of all, a few housekeeping items. Always keep your audio muted so everyone can enjoy the conversation. Um, use the chat function on Zoom if you'd like to um, ask a question of either Dr. Cross or Dr. Piercy. Uh, you can use the public chat or you can send those questions to me privately. As always, this chat will be recorded and will be posted to the coronavirus website, which I hope everyone has had a chance to visit. At this point, it's chock full of wonderful information. So Tim, let's jump right in. This week marked the beginning of phase one of our re-entry plans. How do you feel things are going? Well, thanks and, and good morning, everyone. Uh, and, and Lisa, yes, as you mentioned, for those on campus, this is really the first week of phase one. For those uh, across the state, some of you started phasing back last week, so maybe even a little further into our, our re-entry process. Uh, but I have to say, uh, really, by and large, feel really good about the progress that we're making. Uh, and I'll share just a couple examples of why, why I say that. Uh, First of all, I, I've been seeing firsthand uh, the, the detailed health and safety plans that we're asking our research faculty uh, to establish so that when they do return to their laboratories and when their, their uh, coworkers, uh, postdocs, research associates return to the laboratories, we know that that's being done under safe conditions, making great progress with that, and, and that's really good. I've seen a number of exceptions reports uh, on campus, again, for those who have to occasionally or periodically come by and pick up materials or drop off mail or, or uh, uh, retrieve supplies. That uh, has gone well also. The College of Veterinary Medicine doing a superb job getting ready to uh, welcome a new class and, and getting ready to uh, engage uh, their, their senior class in, in more experiential and hands-on learning. That creates special challenges for everyone in the College of Veterinary Medicine uh, they've scaled up uh, just a little bit the, the care that they're offering through their clinics. And again, I've, I've seen very positive progress in that regard. Uh, and, and I think, uh, you know, the really positive indicator to me is that most of us are still working remotely. And that is what we had hoped for uh, with phase one. Those who really need to have been able to uh, return to the workplace. Uh, but uh, across the board, we're not uh, simply opening the doors and saying it's business as usual we're moving into this new normal phase uh, slowly and carefully. And, and the real reason of that, uh, for that, of course, is health and safety. And uh, I'm once again pleased to say we have no positive cases of COVID-19 within the Institute of Agriculture employees. So uh, we're, we're keeping that track record going every week. I say it out loud and worry that I'm gonna jinx us, but, uh, but so far, uh, thanks to you and what you're doing, uh, we have been able to maintain that. Now, let me just wrap up sort of phase one remarks with this, and that is uh, everyone needs to be reminded that uh, new, our new normal, uh, starting with phase one, is that when you're at the workplace, you're wearing a mask and you're uh, washing your hands regularly, you're following CDC guidance, and you're completing the checklist 
answering a number of questions before you re report to work uh, at the workplace. So you say, well, I'm not wearing a, a mask right now. Why are you telling us to? Obviously, within your own office, uh, within a private area, if you will, that's certainly not necessarily, and then, unless you have guests coming to join you. But uh, really, we want to emphasize the need to wear masks anytime uh, you're out and about. Uh, and so we'll, we'll uh, probably reemphasize that again uh, during the course of this discussion. Uh, following that practice uh, and all CDC guidance, I think, just sets us up for continued success. Great and great advice. So many entities, including um, UT, uh, planning re-entry are looking to the number of state cases as a barometer of whether or not to reopen. So can you share some, some thoughts on this? Yeah, and, and uh, this will get us right into really our focus here this morning too. So uh, as an agricultural economist, I, I don't claim to be a, an epidemiologist, so uh, I'm not going to go too deep into data and all the various statistics and, and uh, uh, measurements that we can look at and consider as we manage through this uh, uh, pandemic. But I think it is uh, really helpful to have an expert who can talk just a little bit about the status of our state uh, and how we're doing uh, from border to border uh, with regard to the pandemic. Obviously, without getting into details on every single location, but we're, we've been really fortunate to have someone at the helm that's, uh, that's experienced, that's uh, capable and professional, and that is uh, Commissioner Lisa Piercy. Uh, she's been serving as Commissioner of Health uh, ever since uh, Governor Lee uh, was appointed, uh, and she's got experience in the medical profession. She's an MD herself. Uh, she was Executive Vice President out, out at West Tennessee Healthcare, and those of you out in the western part of the state will appreciate that she's a West Tennessee native, so uh, she's familiar with that part of the state as well. Uh, I happen to know that she has a heart for children, for youth, uh, and uh, rural communities as well. So I think it makes logical connections with our Institute of Agriculture and our presence across the state. And, and I also want to note she serves on our Lone Oaks Farm Advisory Council. So she's no stranger uh, to our extension of 4-H programs in particular. So with all that, you know, I sometimes uh, refer to her as Commissioner Piercy. I sometimes uh, call her Dr. Piercy, but I I'm really privileged to be able to also say Lisa because, uh, again, she is a friend, uh, she's a supporter, and we're just so happy to have her join us uh, here this morning. So, Commissioner, uh, we, we turn it over to you. Thank you, Dr. Cross, and uh, it's good to see you and Keith and all, all my other friends uh, that, that are on the screen and some that I know are joining that are not on the screen. So, um, I just wanted to start off by giving a bit of an overview of where we are, but I really um, would like to reserve the bulk of uh, my portion uh, for any questions that you may have because I know that what I'm talking about is just what I'm thinking about, uh, and I want to make sure that I'm, I'm addressing whatever you want to hear about. So uh, we are rapidly reopening, and uh, part of the philosophy behind that is Economic health and prosperity is uh, part of physical health, and that's not to say that uh, it's more important or it is even as important, uh, but it is an important component of that. And so as we've been watching our uh, numbers go down over the last several weeks, um, 
we have moved fairly aggressively, not as aggressively as some states, but quite a bit faster than other states uh, in our reopening phase. And I realized I just said something that I uh, used a term that I don't want to use. It's a habit, and I hope you don't use. And, and I was talking about numbers and case count. Uh, that, that's what I said because that's, that's sort of the lay vernacular. Um, but I really encourage you to uh, look at rates and um, trajectories. I know I don't have to tell anybody on, on this call that um, uh, how to define a trend or how to look at data over time. Uh, that's something that we deal with pretty commonly amongst the lay public. Um, but we're looking at downward trajectories. And you also have to take into consideration that the more you test, the more you're going to find. And so we have done a heck of a job uh, in testing in Tennessee. Uh, you probably saw, it came out on NPR late last week, um, that a Harvard study uh, put us as one of the, um, only one of the seven states in America that are doing enough testing. And uh, of the seven that were named, we were the most populated state. Uh, and so we're really um, making good strides in testing. Uh, it's getting national attention, which is both good and bad. I did interviews earlier this week with New York Times, Washington Post, and NBC News on our testing efforts, which is a, a real uh, you know, boost, but it also means that a lot of people are watching and, and we have to continue doing well. So related to rates, we, um, we want to see an overall uh, trajectory, uh, downward trajectory of our positivity rates. Ours right now, I haven't looked at the numbers this morning, but it's um, plus or minus 6%, maybe a little bit less than that of all tests are being uh, come back as positive. Why is that important? You want to be able to test enough to where most of the tests you are getting are negative. That means your sample size is big enough. That is the same, and, and most of you probably haven't heard this, but it's a common – actually, brace yourselves because this may shock you. But it's a very common practice in medicine that you want to have lots of negatives. You want to be conservative because – the um, the ramifications of missing a positive can be really bad. For example, the thing that might surprise you is that out of every 10 appendectomies that you do, nine you want to find nine of them cold. You want to catch that one hot appendix um, way more than you want. You want to be able to do so many uh, appendectomies that you catch one out of 10. Because if you are only operating on uh, people that you know have appendicitis and you know are going to have a hot appendix when you get in there, um, then you're not doing it enough. And we, we have the same approach to um, we have the same approach to testing because if you're getting positivity rates of 10, 15, or heaven forbid, like some of our colleagues states uh, in that are pretty close by Georgia, uh, when uh, your positivity rates are 20 and 23%, it means you're not doing enough testing. And so uh, our positivity rates are um, hovering around 6%. That's a lot lower than it was several weeks ago. And that continued downward trajectory is um, uh, why we're comfortable in starting to phase some of our reopening. A uh, little preview, uh, there'll probably be an announcement later today it's possible that it could get bumped until Monday, um, but we're, uh, we're looking to make some more reopening announcements very, very soon and have been talking about that uh, just this morning. 
So what does that mean for um, kind of going back, whether at school or work or just in the community? We're going to have more cases. I mean, that, that's not a secret. It's not something that we're holding our breath thinking we're not going to have more cases. I'll point you back to um, a couple of points. First, nobody ever expected this to go away. This is not about disease eradication or elimination of cases or frankly, even minimization of cases. You have to remember what we talked about going, uh, what we were going for in flattening the curve to begin with. And when we talk about flattening the curve, it was never about um, making sure that the case count got to zero or in the single digits or whatever. It was about preserving health system capacity. And it didn't take long at all, maybe a week or two, really after all of the ventilator talk was finished in late March or early April, people stopped talking about health system capacity and they started talking about numbers and, uh, and cases. And we've really lost sight of what the goal here is. And the goal here is to keep the disease burden, I was about to say at bay, we may or may not keep it at bay as much as we're going to keep it spread out uh, so our health system capacity can keep up. We have not had anywhere close to an issue with that. Although I will tell you in the last week, maybe even two weeks, uh, since we started allowing for elective surgeries in uh, our hospitals, our hospital capacity has gone down some. And, and that's in the face of uh, reduction in disease burden. So uh, the things that worry me personally and my colleagues are this perfect storm of elevation of uh, elective hospital cases, which, oh, by the way, I don't know if you've seen the headline in the last 24 or 48 hours, rates of cancer diagnosis have really, really gone down over the last eight weeks. That does not mean people are getting cancer less. It means people are presenting for evaluation and treatment less, which is super concerning. We've seen the same trends with heart attacks and strokes. Um, and there might be a little bit of reduction in heart attacks and strokes because people aren't as active and they aren't doing uh, quite as many things as they used to be doing. Uh, but really, the incidence of that is not gone down in the population, and certainly cancer hasn't either in eight weeks. So we think that is a reflection of um, people not presenting for care in a timely manner. And uh, that's concerning. So when that population gets back up to speed, when elective surgeries uh, get back up to full capacity, that's going to strain our healthcare system. And then any healthcare hospital administrator will tell you that a bad flu season by itself, nothing else, can really be scary and can really cause you to go into some emergency uh, uh, measures. And so the perfect storm would be we have increased rates in the face of already strained hospital capacity and uh, a, a high influenza burden. And so all of those things uh, are things that we're watching. Uh, people ask me a lot, in fact, the governor just asked me yesterday about this common, um, I don't know if it's a myth, but at least it's a commonly held belief that uh, the heat and humidity is going to tamp down on this virus. Um, there's actually no evidence for that. Uh, people want that to be true, and we hope that's true. And I can't say that it's not true. We can't rule that out. But, um, you know, we've been studying coronaviruses, that family, 
uh, for a long time, and there's really not any indication that it will um, be negatively, or I guess you could say positively, impacted by heat and humidity. Uh, what is affected by heat and humidity is that people are in the house less and they're uh, congregated less. And you know, people are indoors and around more people uh, in the wintertime just because of the weather itself. And so whether it's the actual heat and humidity uh, or just the congregation of folks uh, in confined settings, uh, we do expect to have a bigger surge in the, in the fall and winter. Uh, which for all the aforementioned reasons of, of influenza and hospital capacity, et cetera, um, make us pretty concerned about that. So um, what, are, what are we doing now? Let me, uh, a couple of uh, comments about that and then uh, happy to take questions. We're having a really targeted approach of testing vulnerable populations. Uh, you've probably heard us talk in the media about long-term care facilities, um, which, uh, includes nursing homes, but it's not limited to nursing homes, uh, as well as uh, the incarcerated population. We have just finished um, widespread mass testing of all prison inmates and prison staff statewide. Uh, we're the first state in the nation to do that. Uh, and so those results, uh, the final numbers should be in today on the last one that we did earlier this week. And so um, we've had many, many cases, I think uh, just a few over 2,500 of our 16,000 cases are in the correctional population. Uh, and so that makes our numbers look higher, um, but uh, whether it's nursing homes or prisons or other vulnerable populations, contained populations, juvenile detention, uh, right now today as we speak, uh, we're testing uh, housing authorities um, in, the, in the major metro areas. When we look for cases, we're going to find cases. That doesn't surprise or shock us. Um, but you should know that context before we um, before you interpret the numbers. Finally, um, we're uh, expanding our testing efforts for more uh, corporate and um, employer populations, and that does include uh, THEC in our university system. Uh, so we've been in frequent discussions. In fact, I think there's a meeting later today um, with Mike Krause, uh, and uh, Randy Boyd and I have, have spoken frequently about this about how do we um, keep our campuses safe, and particularly amongst the uh, residential student population, of which there's about 26,000 students statewide in, uh, in residential housing. And so we're actively developing a plan for um, testing of students and faculty, particularly those that will be um, potentially be in person, as well as other employers. Uh, you know, we're bringing, um, starting to bring, I should say, state employees back to the office at the end of the month and over um, throughout the month of June and into July, uh, and how we can offer testing for uh, that population as well as other corporate populations. Uh, we're working with Electrolux and Nissan and Volkswagen and other large employers. Final comment, just to debunk some myths, uh, testing is good for that day. And that is the recognized limitation. People oftentimes say, well, why, why would you find value in mass testing these populations when you essentially are only getting a status for that day? That's entirely true. The only way to respond to that is it's the only tool that we have. And if we can um, test our population somewhat in a point prevalence study and find out who's positive today, we can affect people um, that might be, uh, that, that, that might spread that infection today. Uh, we can affect that today. That will beg the question for retesting, which we will have to do. 
um, but uh, we can only use the tools that we have uh, in our tool belt, uh, and that's what we have today is, is PCR testing. I can get into antibody testing if you guys want to talk about that. Uh, the short version is, is it really hasn't panned out uh, the way we um, thought or would have liked. Uh, and, you know, presence of antibodies doesn't um, necessarily confer immunity, uh, so it's more uh, valuable in uh, public health surveillance and in zero prevalence statewide, but it's not, um, not necessarily too helpful on the individual level. So I'll stop there and uh, happy to take your questions. So, Doctor, I'm sorry, go ahead, Lisa. Um, just as a follow-up, someone asked that if you're asymptomatic, is that only good for one day as well? if you were to take the test? Yeah, so uh, the, test, uh, the test results really um, uh, are only good for that day, no matter who you are or what kind of symptoms you have. And that has less to do with your current symptoms and more to do with just the spread of infectious disease. So generally, we know that you, um, you, your test won't come positive until at least about two days after you're exposed. And it has the highest likelihood of coming positive about five to six days after you're exposed. Now, for those that are asymptomatic, they can be fully, they can be at the height of their infection and uh, transmitting it like crazy, uh, but still be completely asymptomatic. Uh, and so that's why it's really important, even if you're well, if you're returning to a setting where you could pose a risk to others um, to know your testing status. One other, uh, one other point about asymptomatic spread that I hear bad information perpetuated pretty commonly. You know, most of the talk about being asymptomatic that we've had has been in regards to the prison population. And uh, in retrospect, maybe I shouldn't have been so uh, verbal about it, but it was so scientifically fascinating to me that, um, that we did talk about it publicly. It wasn't wrong. It just created some confusion because uh, particularly in the inmate population, 98% of those 2,500 positives were completely asymptomatic. They were well, um, which caused people to think that uh, that could be extrapolated to the general population, and it can't. We think maybe at most 25% of people who test positive are asymptomatic. Most people are sick uh, when, they, when they test positive, uh, but there is some rate of asymptomatic spread in the general population. But in congregate care settings, like in, like in uh, prison populations and in nursing home populations, the rate of um, asymptomatic uh, carriage is much, much higher. That is what is so um, physiologically perplexing because that really doesn't make any sense um, uh, as in that congregate care setting as it would in the, in the general population. So uh, the bottom line is most people are symptomatic, but even if you uh, are feeling well, you still very well could have it and could be transmitting it. So um, Dr. Piercy, in uh, thinking, it, well, as you know, we have a number of extension offices across the state, in fact, in every county. So this person is asking about offices and office buildings, and they're, and they're asking that if these offices can't meet CDC guidance and regulations due to the age of the building and where it's located, if it's poor ventilation, sanitary conditions, inconsistent temperatures, et cetera, is it a possibility that employees could continue to work from home? They're asking about that. Is that a good idea? 
um, in your opinion? Is, is the building somewhat of a risk? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. And um, uh, some of you know, my husband is in industrial safety and hygiene. And so it, we talk a lot, well, quite frankly, not that much. It's not that exciting. But we do talk sometimes about, um, you know, physical infrastructure and, and its ability to influence or uh, promote disease spread just based on the physical plant. And quite frankly, the answer is, a little bit, but not very much. You have to remember that the overwhelming vast majority of transmission is person to person. And uh, there's a lot of um, misunderstanding out there about droplet versus airborne. Um, this, is, this does not hang in the air by and large like measles does. For example, if somebody um, checked into a hotel an hour before you did and they had measles, you might be at risk just by going and checking in uh, in that same space. This is, this is different. There are aerosolized, there are ways that the disease can become aerosolized. Probably um, the most notable would be through uh, dentistry, you know, when they um, put all the little high pressure spray and that can aerosolize it. The, and, and respiratory procedures like bronchoscopy can, uh, but otherwise it really is mostly just larger droplets. And uh, some of you know that I sometimes uh, make snarky comments. And so my snarky comment on this is, you know, don't lick the doorknobs and, uh, you know, don't put things in the office in your mouth. And that's probably the best way to protect yourself. Uh, I, I'm being a little facetious to prove a point, but sanitary conditions, ventilation, if it's good enough to house, uh, it's probably fine. Uh, really, the main thing is is human-to-human -human transmission and making sure um, good hand hygiene, uh, wearing your mask, staying distance, uh, that's going to protect you way more than, an older, than worrying about an older building. So, Commissioner, we, we know... Excuse me, I was going I, I to say I see a question about false negatives in the chat, and I'm happy to take it, um, and then I've got to do a 1030 call, so I'm going to have to jump off. Um, but there's a question about uh, false negative rates, uh, and actually been dealing with this issue just this morning. There are, um, first of all, you guys know this, um, but just a level set, because it's come to my attention that apparently the general public seems to think that every medical test is 100% accurate all the time, and that's not true. Uh, just, to, just to give you a point uh, or a frame of reference, the strep stream that you get is about 22%, has about a 22% false negative rate. Uh, and so if you've ever been to the doctor or had your kid at the doctor and you know what strep looks like and smells like and feels like, but you test negative, that's why they'll treat you anyway because uh, that test is not 100% accurate. No different with this test. Uh, when you use the um, standard, traditional, what we call PCR test, um, that has about a four and a, or a four and a half hour turnaround time once it's in the lab, uh, that has a 92 to 93% accuracy um, because it has a pretty high sensitivity rate. When you start using some of these rapid tests, and, and everybody wants the rapid test because nobody likes to wait for anything anymore, uh, there are these 15-minute tests, uh, Abbott ID Now, and then one came out um, maybe Friday or Monday of this past week uh, called Quidel. The uh, president was touting it just as, as he did with the Abbott ID Now. 
there is a huge, huge trade-off between uh, rapid tests and false negatives. So the false negatives for the Abbott ID test um, may be as high as 15 to 20%, and the Quadell test uh, may be another 10% on top of that. And so when you talk about um, really making decisions based on test results, um, you need to look at your false negative rates. The false negative rates on the traditional swabs are still really low, but the rapid test um, be forewarned because they, they really have um, higher rates than, than are generally acceptable. Well, thank you. Let me jump in and just uh, express my appreciation to Commissioner Piercy for giving up the time today to, uh, to visit with our organization. Really appreciate it. I know your uh, your schedule has been uh, incredible uh, and challenging for the past probably 10 weeks now. Uh, thanks, thanks, thanks so much for sharing with us, Lisa. Really appreciate it. Good to see you, Tim. Thanks, everybody. Have a good weekend. You too. You too. So, Tim, you're back on the hot seat here. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody to pass the hard questions to now. So, actually, um, it would have been helpful to get a little bit of her take on this, but I, I think you also can address this. Um, this person is acknowledging what Dr. Piercy talked about, and that was the fact that we are aggressively testing um, people here in the state of Tennessee. And the person asked, uh, the national guidelines for reopening are going on percentages of new cases per number of tests. So as we look at Tennessee's numbers in most counties outside of Shelby and Davidson, percentage of new cases is steadily decreasing. However, with that many tests going on, the number of new cases continue to rise in some counties. May we go by the percentage rather than the number of new cases in our counties when we're making decisions about reopening these extension offices in particular? Yeah, great. And, and, and I think we heard actually Commissioner Piercy speak to that, and she mentioned how important it was to look at rate as opposed to only focusing on number of cases. So I think uh, we, we need to, you know, obviously look at both. If you've got a, a community with a small population uh, that, that a, a, uh, a small number of cases actually has a, you know, potential large impact, that could be important. But likewise, uh, a small uh, population that's showing a decreasing trend may, may suggest just the opposite, that things are improving. So I think it's really a matter of, of considering both. And I also think uh, in, in all of our counties, uh, off-campus locations, and, and obviously for our campus location as well, we, we have to make these decisions in concert and cooperation with uh, local government officials, our, our county mayors, county governments. Uh, we, we can't, uh, I don't think, uh, decide things in isolation uh, because honestly, what, what we do has an impact on the community and vice versa. So we've got to work together on that. I know uh, Dr. Burns and the Extension Regional Directors are thinking that through just a little further now that we're into phase one. What do we do to consider uh, further changes and whether we can move ahead uh, with a phase two uh, approach or not? But uh, again, I think even as we consider that, we, we need to think about what, what local uh, officials are, are thinking in that regard as well and work together uh, just as, uh, as the legislation states, our, our extension advisory councils are to work together uh, with county government. So uh, that, that's not a hard and fast answer. It's, it's impossible, I think, to give one measure and say, this is it, this is what we're gonna base our decisions off of. But uh, I think, again, paying 
particular attention to trends is, is certainly a wise counsel uh, that Commissioner uh, shared with us today. Great. Well, changing gears slightly, this question um, asks, with the announcement of the largest university in California not planning on bringing students back to campus in the fall, what uh, impact will that have on our plans to be back on campus this fall? You know, honestly, I think no direct uh, impact at all. Every campus is in a little different situation. Uh, and every campus, again, just we just talked about, is in a community with a little bit different situation. So I don't think that one university declaring, you know, we're going to shift all of our enrollment online uh, necessarily has any, any direct impact on us. I think, uh, and, and nor would it have a direct impact necessarily on any other uh, institution uh, across the U.S. I happen to know that the University of California system is still intent on reopening, and that's a huge system with hundreds of thousands of students. So uh, even, even in the state of California, there doesn't seem to be at least an immediate uh, impact from that announcement. I think what's important is for each of our universities uh, and each of our offices, again, to, to think about what conditions are like, uh, what the experience has been as we have moved into a reentry phase, and then make uh, hopefully informed and, and knowledgeable decisions about moving forward. Testing, as, as Commissioner um, Piercy mentioned, is critical, but, but testing also still just gives you a point in time. So I know there's a lot of talk across all university campuses, especially about testing, uh, because if you think about the, uh, the really confined populations of students in dorms, uh, it, it's really critical. And as she mentioned, the, the rate of transmission is very high in those uh, situations. So testing is going to be critical, but there's a lot of developments going on with regard to testing as well. She made just a, a brief comment about antibodies, uh, and that's testing to determine if a, a person has had COVID-19 and therefore potentially may have uh, some immunity. Uh, all kinds of challenges with regard to that. First of all, we don't know, even if, if we are certain you've had it, we don't know if that necessarily gives you immunity. There's no, no real definitive research on that yet. Secondly, the, the uh, tests for those antibodies are not very specific. So it may be that you've had one other coronavirus, maybe not COVID-19, but some other variant. Uh, and we don't know if that gives you protection in any way. Uh, from COVID-19. So all of this is still a work in progress, obviously, but it's very important uh, for, for our workforce, for our universities, uh, for corporate uh, America as well. Uh, everybody is looking for a vaccine or a test or, or, or some way to determine immunity, uh, and we're not there yet. So Tim, there we've had a number of uh, questions and I've had these even offline. Um, clarification on travel. What travel is banned? What, what travel is accepted? Um, if somebody takes a vacation, as I know we're getting into the summer months, if somebody takes a vacation that takes them out of state, what are the quarantine guidelines and if they have to physically be in their office, do they have to quarantine for 14 days? So anyway, if you could just address travel overall, yeah. that would be helpful. Good, and, and you know, this is a logical uh, topic of discussion because as we think about reentry and phasing up our work, 
much of what we do or much of what we used to do at least involves travel. And, and last week I made it a point to remind everyone to take annual leave. So uh, I'm, I'm to blame for uh, creating some of these questions, right? Because if you're going to take leave, why not go to uh, a nice sunny beach somewhere? And then if you do that, well, what does that uh, say about uh, your return to the workforce? So first of all, let me start with, with what we've written down, and that's in our guidelines. And that is that if you go out of state uh, uh, privately, you know, as, as a part of annual leave, uh, when you return, we would like you to self-quarantine for 14 days, but that should be in conversation and in uh, uh, under the planning with your supervisor. So I think it, it you know, it, unfortunately, it depends. If you went to a remote forest in uh, in West Virginia and never saw another human being uh, for a week of, of annual vacation in a cabin, then then what you need to do and what makes sense for you and your coworkers may be very, very different than than if you were uh, on a beach uh, in in some southern state and in very close proximity to hundreds of other people uh, for days at a time. You know, when you return, we may want to have a little more strict uh, uh, restrictions on on your engagement with the workforce. So I, I think, uh, you know, think about that. Uh, talk with your supervisor determine what makes sense. We've encouraged everyone to re work remotely that can uh, for, for the uh, continuing. And so it may not be in the near term, uh, much of a challenge to say, well, I'll just continue to work from home for two weeks after I get back. As we look further out, and I know I'm thinking about that as well. Well, we get to July and that's a normal time to, to get away for a week. What's it gonna be like uh, in July or August? Uh, and when we return, what will we need to do for right now, our crystal ball is not not great, so we're just going to say, you know, uh, think about having 14 days of, of self-quarantine when you return, but if conditions get better between now and then, we may may be in a position to relax uh, that guidance uh, and, and enable you uh, to come back to the workplace. I think, you know, for myself, I'd want to think about what what is my return from, from a uh, out-of-state location due to the risk of those I work with. And so it's thinking about others as opposed to thinking about yourself. Because if, if you've been there and been exposed to someone, that, that's already happened. The, the question is, how does that impact, impact uh, potentially uh, others in your office? So if, I think if we all think about it from that standpoint and then talk with our supervisor and work out a plan, we can take a vacation, we can go enjoy some time uh, away from the office or away from home, but we can also return safely and, and do so without furthering uh, the spread or the risk uh, associated with the virus. Great, and a reminder to everyone, these guidelines are available on the coronavirus website, so do um, take a minute and look at those if you have further questions. Um, we have, looks like one more question, and the question is, if your local physician group offers the antibody testing and you test positive for coronavirus, does this information need to be relayed to the university? No, at this point, we're, we're not requiring that, uh, and that would be personal health information as far as I'm concerned. The only thing required to be reported is a positive COVID-19 test result. But the, uh, the antibody test, uh, we, we really don't have any, any uh, requirement uh, for that to be shared, nor, nor am I certain what we would do with it at this point. Uh, so I think 
you know, it sounds like it, it could be good news for someone or it could be bad news because the other thing we, we don't know for sure uh, is uh, if you have a, a positive uh, for that antibody test, that doesn't necessarily mean that it was weeks ago. It could be that, that uh, it was just last week or, or currently even, or it could be from, from six weeks ago. So the science there is still not well-defined. We don't have enough research uh, in my opinion and the opinion of, of our medical experts to really act upon that information yet at this point. So I think, uh, again, it, it may be helpful to an individual, uh, but uh, organizationally, we're, we're not requiring that information. And one more did come in, and that is, um, what about going to board meetings or other groups of which you're a member or advisor? Um, and, and maybe it's more than 10 people. Uh, as long as you social distance is is that okay to attend these well we're we're really still trying to stress uh you know limiting exposure to 10 people or less but uh obviously as you think about uh having classes resume in fall uh we can't restrict our classroom size to 10 people what we can do is is establish uh social social distancing six foot spacing uh for for our students and so forth so I think my, my uh, judgment there is that if it's an external group uh, creating a, a meeting or, or hosting a, a meeting or some kind of a, an event, and certainly if it's, uh, you know, less than, than a, a huge crowd, uh, but maybe slightly more than our guidance of 10 individuals, provided there is good social distancing, provided there's an opportunity to, uh, to wear masks and observe good sanitation, uh, I, I don't think at this point that we should uh, absolutely decline each and every one of those. I think, again, uh, it would be a matter of asking a few questions, like what, what steps have been taken uh, in preparing to do this uh, safely? And if uh, you're comfortable that there have been appropriate steps taken uh, to acknowledge that, that everyone's not going to be sitting shoulder to shoulder and that there won't be uh, you know, a really conducive environment to spreading disease, then uh, I think that would be uh, something that we could and should participate in. Great. Well, a lot of great information today. So um, Tim, do you have any final thoughts you wanted to share with everyone? Yeah, thanks Lisa. And, and thanks once again for everyone joining us today. Uh, I, I know that uh, seems like sometimes we live, eat and breathe uh, coronavirus. And I worry that uh, once a week is getting to be too much uh, in terms of sharing information, but I really appreciate a chance to interact, to know what, what folks are thinking about, what concerns are out there, what questions are out there. So I hope it's helpful for you as well. And of course, I love seeing, seeing faces uh, since we don't get to see each other uh, well enough uh, or often enough anymore. So uh, thanks, first of all, for, for joining us today. Uh, second of all, let me, let me harp a little bit more on where I started, and that is if you're back to work uh, in, in terms of the office uh, environment or laboratory or classroom, uh, when you're present, you're to be wearing a mask and you're to be, you know, taking care with sanitation. Uh, you're, you're to be filling out that checklist uh, every morning to remind yourself and, and remind others that, that you're healthy, that you're uh, in a position uh, to, to safely uh, be at the workplace. So uh, wear a mask uh, and remember that uh, wearing that mask, again, isn't for you. It's largely uh, out of respect for others. It re reduces the transmission 
of, of uh, particles that, that could infect others. So, you know, on the chance that uh, one of us is, is actually positive but asymptomatic, wearing that mask, make sure we don't contribute to the spread uh, of, of coronavirus. So if you think, gosh, I, I'm, I'm strong, I'm tough, I'm in great shape, I don't need to wear a mask. All those things may be true, but the mask isn't for you, it's for others. So put it on and, and help your coworkers, help those uh, that you work with, help your students uh, to remain uh, safe as well. Uh, we, we certainly will continue monitoring uh, trends, rates, cases, all the data uh, that, that we've talked about just a little bit this morning uh, as we think about phase two, but uh, we're not at a point to say, here we are, phase two, you know, back to work uh, uh, even further. So keep doing what you're doing. We, I think we're making great progress. I think you all are doing all the right things. Uh, and if uh, that this, these trends continue and if the numbers continue uh, to show decreases, uh, we'll, we'll let you know uh, more about phase two. Many of the plans are already posted for phase two, but let's not charge ahead just yet. Let's be sure we're at the right place at the right time uh, at the county level and, and at the campus level. So uh, we'll, we'll worry more about phase two again uh, when we get a little bit closer to the right time. So other than that, I'd just say carry on, do what you're doing. Thank you for serving, uh, whether it's students or stakeholders or conducting research, serving our, our animal clients. Uh, we appreciate your continued hard work and, and productive uh, approach to things. Uh, hang in there, we'll get through this. Uh, I feel better every day, honestly, and, and I hope you do too. Uh, this is uh, you know, an, an unprecedented challenge but uh, we're, we're gonna learn some new things. We already have discovered, I think, some great approaches to things that we probably wouldn't have discovered otherwise. So we'll make the best of this uh, and we'll uh, continue to, to move ahead. So I'd wrap it up with that, Lisa. And thanks to Lisa for hosting these once again. I, I need to give a little shout out to Mike Stanley who always uh, makes our technology work. Uh, and uh, he's behind the scenes, but, uh, but he's back there making sure things work well. So thank you, Mike Stanley. And, and Lisa, thanks for doing a great job moderating once again, too. Well, thanks, Tim. We appreciate it. And thanks everyone for being here today. Have, have a great weekend. <laughs>